Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Eric Balchunas, ETF specialist here at Bloomberg, joins us now for our next segment. And Eric, welcome. Has Robin Hood, and here we go again because it's sort of fascinating, <laughs> has it taken away investors from ETFs, from run-of-the-mill sort of vanilla ETFs? And some of them aren't that vanilla either. Yeah, you know, when ETFs were introduced back in the 90s, it was like, hey, you know, you can now trade a whole basket like it were a stock. So you get to the benefit of the liquidity of the stock, but it's a diversified basket, so your risk is a little lower. That used to be a feature. They see it as a bug. Uh, that's too, it's not enough uh, juice for them. And so that's why we are seeing they might start with ETFs, but they will end up at stocks and options. Stop. Is- ETFs are the gateway. <laughs> the gateway. Is that what you're telling us? Yes. Uh, <laughs> we, we interviewed two actual uh, Gen Z traders on our podcast. And both of them had the same kind of experience, maybe, you know, started off slow, but they always end up at stocks and options. If they do use ETFs, they tend to like leverage ETFs like TQQQ and SQQQ, which is a way to sort of bet on the Q's movement. Um, But look, I think they are a legitimate force in the market. But if you look at the assets, Robinhood might have, what, 50, 60 billion in terms of all of their accounts. Now, Vanguard takes that in in about two months. So I think at the end of the day, the real retail investor army is still the buy and hold uh, advisor world. Mm. That is really big money. That thing, the, but, but they don't trade a lot. So I do think when you get to mid and small stocks, Robinhood can move the market uh, and retail investors can move it. They make about 18% of the trading, according to uh, my colleague Larry Tab, which has some great data. That's up from 15% last year and 10% 10 years ago. So this has been on the rise for a while, and uh, so has high-frequency trading. So it's a lot of retail and algos out there right now, uh, moving the market, especially for the smaller stocks. So Eric, as you look across your ETF universe, and I know you've been doing it for years, so you see everything. Where's the money flowing when you take a look at the Vanguard flows and the BlackRock flows? Are there certain ETF sectors or areas that are mo- more popular? Yeah, fixed income is just ruling the year. I mean, this is mm. the Fed trade. And gold, uh, those I put under just Fed-induced money. That's basically been the story the only it's, – it's interesting. There's been definitely some money into equities, but not a lot. Not as much as you'd think if, because the equity market's up, uh, what, 30 40% since um, Kitchen Sink Day at the end of March. And there hasn't been much flows into equities because most people wanted to front-run the Fed over in the corporate bond area. So when you look at BlackRock in particular, all of their $52 billion in flows are fixed income. Um, every last dime. That's weird. Um, and equities have been a little left behind. And what's interesting is – Small caps had their best quarter in, I think, 30 years. Same with mid caps. And they both saw outflows in ETFs. It's interesting. There's been a lot of areas left behind. Emerging markets saw outflows, and they just had a best quarter in a decade. That's how it's an, it's an embarrassment of riches, I think, for investors. And where they see it right now is gold, corporate bonds, and the Qs. That is the one area of equities people are piling into. So I suppose you're getting some kind of yield in corporate bonds, but you're not getting a huge yield, Eric. Are people that scared about the economy that they're going for sort of the, the, the very safest asset? Well, the corporate bonds is just because you know the Fed's coming. So for the past three months, the Fed says, hey, we're going to buy LQD. So everybody, the smart money just piled into LQD. 
LQD took in more flows in the second quarter than it ever has in a year um, because people are just like, don't fight the Fed. I'll get right in front. And then the Fed started buying LQD. So I, I try to uh, basically contextualize this by saying the Fed owns about $8 billion of corporate bond ETFs, but the whole area took in about $60 billion. So most of the money was made in front running. I think what you're going to see now, though, is people moving out of it. I think they're going to go, okay, the Fed has kind of tapped out on their corporate bond ETF buying. Let me move to something else. So I, I think we're going to see a swing into small cap, mid cap, emerging markets, and some of those areas that were a little left behind in the first half. So Eric, just real quickly, 20 seconds or so. Overall, give us a sense of kind of the funds flows into ETFs in general. Well, they're on pace to have a record year. Uh, so there's still that sort of shift from high cost to low cost. People came, you know, ETFs went through a lot, but liquidity, low cost, and tax efficiency kind of trumps all any, you know, everything right now. And you continue to see money flow. It's like $212 billion, uh, so far year to date. So we expect to see more, but I do think we're going to see some of those left behind sectors see some flows. Interesting. Eric Balchunas, thanks for joining us. Always the expert, Vani, on all things ETF. We're fortunate to have uh, his ear. Eric's a senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone. So, Vani, it's just interesting that, I, you know, I've been in this business a long time. This ETF phenomenon has just been amazing, and it's really been, uh, I think, so widely embraced by many investors. Exactly. And you see some of the same debates going on in the ETF world as you do, in other words, like the, the fee war, for example, you know, the... the <laughs> yep. the, 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 the chasing the fees to zero, if you like, and yeah, billions I mean, even, flowing into quant ETFs and so on. Yeah. And even the discount brokers, I mean, you know, you see the Charles Schwab going to zero yeah. trading commission. So just, again, it's a boon for uh, the consumer and for the investor. Well, as we all know and has been widely reported, uh, Congress is in the midst of negotiating a fourth round of fiscal stimulus. And time is certainly of the essence, as many of the programs from that from the third round, that nearly $3 trillion of stimulus in the third round, those are set to expire in the coming weeks and months. So time is certainly of the essence. Uh, to get an update on how that is all playing out, we welcome Lauren Davison, congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News. Lauren, what's the latest on this next round of fiscal stimulus? Because again, some of these existing programs are about to expire. Well, the latest is that they're still really far apart from having a deal. Even uh, Republicans in the Senate and, and the White House are not on the same page. Uh, just yesterday, uh, you know, President Trump said it would be a red line if the bill did not include a payroll tax cut, which is something that uh, Republicans in the Senate are not at all excited about. Uh, but meanwhile, there's a lot of deadlines that are pressing down on lawmakers, uh, kind of the most important one being the end of this $600 a week uh, federal uninsurance, uh, um, sorry, unemployment insurance benefit uh, that expires at the end of the month. And that's going to be a problem for, for millions of people uh, if, uh, if Congress lets that lapse without uh, you know, filling something to, to replace it. So the extra $600 part would lapse. The unemployment insurance uh, sort of ability to collect wouldn't right Laura would there be anything on top of the of the of the minimum well they would have their their state benefit you know which varies by state but it's about a couple hundred dollars uh, the but the idea is from that the federal government was to sort of backstop that and make sure that people uh, basically had enough to, to pay their rent and and pay all, pay all their bills while uh, you know they were basically uh, shut out of their jobs while the economy was shut down uh, you know when this was set back in late March they thought oh this will be plenty of time but you know both sides thought you know this will this will give plenty of runway you know now that we're uh, you know several months down the line and you know we're seeing states like California shut back down again the virus is spreading even faster than it was um, uh, several months ago uh, that there's a lot of 
of concern that there are a lot of people who, you know, suddenly won't be able to pay their mortgages, pay their rent bills, uh, you know, and, and that's going to cause uh, wider ripples throughout the economy. Yeah, Laura, I know some of the debate within Congress about that $600 a week uh, supplemental payment is that perhaps uh, it's such a it's, it's an amount that, you know, disincentivizes uh, people to go back to work. Is there any sense that they're coming to a resolution on that fundamental disconnect? What they're what they're looking at is they're looking at sort of two things. I've kind of having two sides of the the scale. One is that they're going to have some sort of federal benefit, probably not as high as six hundred dollars, but some amount below that. And then what Republicans want is they want some sort of back to work bonus. You know, there's, there's one idea out there that would be a four hundred and fifty dollar a week back to work bonus for several weeks to encourage people um, who may have uh, you know been making more from unemployment to encourage them back to work. Uh, you know, we'll see exactly where those land and if they're uh, you know if they're able to to reach a deal uh, in the next couple of weeks on that. What about the other parts of it? So there's, you know, all sorts of uh, state and uh, local government relief packages as part of this as well. What, what will Republicans allow and what do they want to uh, what do they want to cut back on? Republicans really don't want much uh, at all for state and local local governments in that package. Um, you know, of course, Democrats, that's one of their top priorities. So there will likely be some sort of money in there. Uh, but the, the big overall question here is how much is this bill going to pass? You know, several months ago, we saw the House pass the HEROES bill that had $3.5 trillion in, uh, in new stimulus spending. Uh, Mitch McConnell uh, for the Republicans has said they want something no more than $1 trillion. So there's a there's a vast difference in where uh, the both sides are. Uh, you know, again, this is a compromise between Pelosi, the White House, and, and McConnell. So we'll probably see something uh, above $1 trillion, but not as high as $3.5 trillion. And, and it's really just about making the money work once you look at unemployment, money for state and local, there's also concern about more money for, for vaccine and for PPE and for the health issues as that continues to be an ongoing problem, plus other things, you know, like another round of stimulus checks or, or more money for, uh, for small businesses. Laura, give us a sense of timing here about when Congress leaves for their summer vacation. What are the odds of getting something done uh, before that recess? Well, the good news is summer vacation is a is a very uh, a good incentive for for lawmakers to to get things done. And Congress typically doesn't act until it has to, and we're rapidly approaching that point. So, uh, both the House and the Senate will be back next week. They basically have two weeks before they're they're scheduled to leave on their break. Uh, you know, these things could spill over a couple days into August, but I think there is um, a growing optimism that there will be a deal. Uh, you know, within the next two to three weeks. What happens then? I mean, will the deal, will will whatever is decided upon, will it last for? I mean, how do they decide how long this lasts for? I mean, nobody knows when a vaccine is going to be available. You know, most businesses that are, you know, not able to reopen. I'm thinking of even you know arts organisations like Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Centre, and so on. They're talking about after Christmas. Broadway is after the new year. Uh, I mean, we're really stretching into next year. So anything that gets decided upon, do we know how long it will last for? We don't know exactly, and part of that will be determined by the cost, and also it's a political calculation. Uh, both, uh, you know, remember there's an election in November, and if, uh, you know, especially for Democrats, they think they have a chance of winning back the Senate, they may want to just negotiate a deal that just goes, you know, into the fall for a little while, little while and then if they were to have uh, control of both the House and the Senate, you know, they could pick up a new bill um, in January and, and, and have uh, basically more favorable negotiating partners on the other side of the building. Mm. So, Laura, is the expectation that no matter what Congress delivers to the president that he will sign it, given that we are so close uh, to a presidential election? 
There is no certainty there. Um, you know, there was a, some concern in the Senate yesterday with uh, with the White House coming out and saying that payroll tax cut would be a, a red line. Um, that's something that, that Republicans in the Senate don't really want. It's expensive. It doesn't help people that are uh, necessarily uh, not working. So that that's a that's a concern. Though you know, some some aides have indicated to me that this is a demand that the White House has made before, uh, and and the president has caved on it. Also, you know, we've seen in previous negotiations over over government funding uh, uh, demands about uh, money for the border wall with Mexico. The president has also caved there. So I think there's some expectation that there's you know a red line may not be a firm bright red line. Laura Davison, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Laura Davison, congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News. And Vani, I think this is going to be uh, a pretty contentious negotiation, as Laura was suggesting, coming you know right down to the wire, probably. Right, and today we actually have Mnuchin uh, testifying as well before Congress. So we, there'll, there'll be a lot of information, but will there be enough information, Paul? I mean, we don't really know yet how many businesses were able to get their hands on money to stay open. We don't know how many of their employees will actually have been, uh, you know, kept on the yep. payrolls and how many won't. So we don't really know how much suffering is out there. But one thing's for sure, um, you know, Republicans do not want it to be as generous as the first time out. And uh, it won't be. I think that's something we can definitely say for sure. Yeah, I think you're right. That three trillion we had in the third round, that was, you know, really uh, a, a major, major statement there right at the beginning of the pandemic. But, you know, as we see these states around the country having, you know, seeing surges, boy, it just kind of goes to the issue. When can we get this thing, kind of get a handle on it? Um, And it doesn't really bode well right now, the data. No, a record number of cases in the United States now. This after already having seen, you know, what we thought was the record a couple of months ago. Well, I'm looking at gold here, up about 20% year-to-date, a real rise here. We had that uh, big dip in March along with uh, pretty much everything else when the COVID hit, but since then been marching ever higher to get a sense of what the outlook is for the precious metal. We welcome Everett Millman, precious metal specialist for Gainesville Coins. Everett, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, I'm a little surprised here um, that gold's performed so well, but it's just been a, a real stalwart here. What's your view going forward for this precious metal? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, As we've seen basically the entire way up these past 12 months, there's been a pretty reliably strong bid that comes in any time the gold price dips significantly. Um, And that durable base of support appears to be forming at the 1800 per ounce level right now. But as you pointed out, it's interesting that we've seen prices recover pretty handsomely in the equity market without much of an impact on risk-off assets like gold and longer-dated treasuries. Um, In fact, both of those have continued to rally right alongside stocks, right alongside the stock market. So even as pockets of the world economy open up, um, as economic activity gradually recovers in the second half of the year, $1,800 gold may be the new normal. Um, On the other hand, if we see some exceedingly good developments on the economic reopening or on the trade front, for instance, that would relieve a considerable portion of the pent-up safe haven pressure that's been buoying the gold price. So although those kinds of positive developments appear rather unlikely today, there is some degree of downside risk for gold. Um, It could swiftly fall back below 1,600 an ounce if indeed the economy or the financial system looks drastically more stable by the third or fourth quarter of this year. So I remember speaking with Paul Tudor-Jones now, it is probably more than a year ago at this point, but he was calling for gold to go higher at the time and said that if it hit 1,800, you know, it would, it would, it would go you know, beyond 
$2,000 an ounce, but that didn't happen. We are still above 1800 but we're, we're not moving higher from here, Everett. What is the reason for that? So that is a very interesting development. And what I would point to is that investment demand for gold has been hitting all-time highs. But it's had to make up for the near eradication of physical demand for gold jewelry in places like India and other key jewelry districts in the Middle East and East Asia. So to me, that points to the importance of some of the institutional trends we're seeing, that institutional buyers, hedge funds, central banks, that's who's buying gold right now. But if some of the assumptions of the gold bears were correct, then losing a huge chunk of the biggest source of demand for the gold sector, uh, more than 50% of demand for gold is made up by the jewelry industry, Hmm. the fact that that market has been significantly impaired for months should have dragged prices much lower. Instead, we have seen that safe haven demand, predominantly from Western institutions, has more than compensated for that lack of wholesale and retail activity in gold jewelry. So let's go to the other side of the equation, Everett, the uh, supply side. Give us a sense of kind of the supply dynamics we're seeing in the global gold market here. Right. Uh, That is definitely an interesting one to look at because COVID has sort of thrown everything into the wind. Um, It's very uncertain whether mines are going to be able to open at full capacity. Um, Certainly with the other precious metals in the silver market, we have seen that uh, Latin America has been hit pretty hard by COVID, and that is causing some tighter supply dynamics. So I think that that is also adding some positive pressure underneath the gold price, and we don't expect that to clear up any time in the next few months. So into the second half of 2020, it could even spill over into early 2021. We should expect some tighter supply, not only in gold, but also in silver and the other metals, and that is positive for price action. What about jewellery demand, Everett? Has it gone away completely? Not completely, but as I said, it is significantly impaired. Um, Much of the world's jewellery demand comes from East Asia and from India, and those regions have simply had to shut down a lot of their jewelry businesses. Um, The same is true in China. Even though the Chinese economy obviously bounced back pretty strongly in the second quarter, uh, copper demand in China rebounded, we haven't seen the same in gold. Uh, Gold jewelry has seen very low volumes of sales in China. In fact, um, on the Shanghai Gold Exchange, where a lot of that jewelry is traded, we've seen the lowest volume since 2013. So it is actually rather impressive that the gold price has held around 1,800 an ounce because we've lost so much of that main source of demand for gold under normal circumstances. Everett, other than gold, what else are you looking at in the precious metal space right now that has your attention? So I'm looking for silver to kind of finally play catch up to gold at this point in the bull market. Um, We've seen the gold-silver ratio has finally corrected back below 100 to 1, that's a pretty significant move. And out of all the precious metals, I believe that silver has the greatest upside potential and the greatest downside potential, unfortunately. It has these very symmetric risks to both sides. Right now, the technicals for silver look pretty bullish. Um, we're above all of our short-term moving averages, and we continue to test our 2019 high around uh, 1955 an ounce. But unfortunately, all of that could reverse quickly. Um, In terms of behaving like a safe haven investment, silver doesn't tend to engender the same level of trust and stability as gold. Hmm. So I'm very keyed in on watching what silver does in the short term because I think that will tell us 
much about where the future trend is moving. All right, we will keep an eye on silver. If you say so, Everett, thank you for that little tour around the precious metals space. Everett Millman is precious metals specialist at Gainesville Coins in Gainesville. It is time to check in now on Bloomberg Opinion, and today we'll speak with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Tara LaChapelle on Netflix, a little softer outlook than people were expecting. And the stock is down 7% today, but let's remember this was being closely watched because it's had a run-up of more than 50% so far this year. It is a stay-at-home stock, and it's adding subscribers, even if not at the pace that Wall Street was expecting. So Tara, thanks for joining. How should we think about Netflix? It did add 2.5 million subscribers, and by most stretches of the imagination, that's a phenomenal number of new subscribers. Can Netflix keep it up? So I, I think Netflix warned last quarter that, you know, they can't keep this growth up. And that's because a lot of the uh, con- the users who joined last quarter and in the first quarter were people that probably would have joined, you know, down the road later this year, let's say. So that that big growth number takes away from subsequent quarters. So that's what we saw again happen where they added almost 16 million subscribers in the first quarter. They added almost 10 million in the second quarter, but now they're forecasting just two and a half million. It's still an incredible growth rate. They're still growing more than 20% every quarter year on year. But I think that, you know, investors and analysts got a little bit ahead of themselves, set themselves up for disappointment, didn't really listen to this guidance that Netflix is giving. And so the stock price is taking, you know, a deserved breather. It trades at a very rich multiple. It doesn't really say much about the outlook for Netflix, the product and the success it's having, but it does say that the stock valuation was probably a little bit inflated. So Tara, I know this is a stock that's really driven by the momentum of the subscriber gains. Um, And I guess the, the big question for a lot of investors now is, you know, as I think about that softer than expected third quarter guidance for subscriber net ads, how much of that was the pull ahead effect of the first half Versus just a more competitive environment out there. Now we've got almost every major media company's got a streaming product in the marketplace. Did the company talk about that? Yeah, I mean, and it's a really good point. The company did talk a little bit more about the competition they're seeing. But as Reed Hastings said, was, you know, they, their subscribers, even when they churn out, even when they cancel, they expect a lot of them to come back, which I do think is a fair statement with Netflix. I think Netflix has kind of established this itself as its this base subscription that a lot of people need and then everything else you kind of test out and have as an add-on service. And that's why I've been writing that a lot of these other services, they're, they're good, but they're not good enough to replace cable or to replace Netflix. So they're really just competing for second place at this point. Of course, that could change at any point if Netflix suddenly doesn't have enough good content, which is very possible the longer that this pandemic stretches on and they're unable to add new material. But right now, I think, you know, Netflix really has the deepest library. They had a lot of their stuff for 2020 already completed and ready to go. So they're not really as affected right now. Whereas if you have Disney Plus or HBO Max, you're really feeling that programming drought at the moment. You're looking and you're running out of new things to watch. And so I think that's how Netflix has really kind of established itself with a moat that these other companies haven't quite gotten yet. Yes, I mean, production is resuming in South Korea, Germany, France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, and the UK. So that should deliver something for the consumer by the uh, you know end of this year. And then Netflix has new titles for 2021. So it's really getting around restrictions with production and sort of the, the need for new material, isn't it, Tara? Yeah, so they said, you know, next year, probably the second half of 2021, 
is when you'll see a lot more of their newer stuff because they are, you know, eventually they'll start to feel the effects of the pandemic, not having everything completed in time. But even with that said, Netflix still has sort of the deepest library, the most new material. They've been doing a lot with reality TV, uh, which has worked really well for them. They had two hit shows, uh, Too Hot to Handle, Love is Blind. And I think that made them realize, you know, reality TV is a really big part of this. It's easier to make remotely. It's cheaper to produce. And also they're experimenting more with animated, which a lot of their uh, employees can do remotely should they need to. So they're not having to do these big production sets necessarily where you have hundreds of people on set at a time, which is something that's going to be really hard for these uh, Hollywood studios to work around going forward. Hey, Tara, what did you make of the announcement that uh, they're naming Ted Sarandos, who's the longtime product uh, person at the company and a senior executive as co-CEO with Reed Hastings? Kind of an odd organizational setup, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, and a lot of writers have pointed out that those co-CEO arrangements tend to spell trouble eventually. I think it's probably a little too early to say that for Netflix. I mean, it's kind of been this informal arrangement for a while, which is what the company said in its letter last night. And I think that was a fair point that, you know, it has been Ted Sarandos and Reed Hastings leading the company for many years. And they've worked together for about 20 years doing this. And Ted has been in charge of the content aspect of it. So I think, you know, there's there's some things you can glean from it that Netflix is very much tied to Hollywood now to producing its own content, being a direct rival with these other media companies. At the same time, it doesn't seem to really change too much of the day-to-day of Netflix at this moment. And perhaps it just has investors look at it more through the lens as a media and entertainment company as opposed to a, a purely tech company. Talk to us about CBS's new offering, Peacock TV, a free streaming video app. Is it gaining subscribers? Will it provide something for Comcast down the road? Right. So Comcast launched Peacock in April just to their own Comcast customers. And so Comcast Internet subscribers get it for free or for no extra charge, I should say. And so this week they've launched now to everybody. And I think that it's a, it's a cool service. I think especially if you're going to use the free version, there's a $5 a month version that people who don't have Comcast can also get that has a fuller library. Again, I don't think it's going to replace Netflix or cable TV on its own. There's just not enough on there. But it is something that makes a good supplement. Some, to another service. So I think what you're going to see happen with a lot of these are people are going to start picking what combination of services do they need and fits their budget. And of course, it's going to be a harder and harder decision the longer that this economic downturn goes on. But I think Comcast is doing something really interesting where instead of charging you know, a high price, they're, they're keeping it cheap or even free in some cases. And they're really relying on advertising because they think the advertising market is going to come back for streaming audiences. And so I think they're looking at it as this is a way to drive loyalty to Comcast Internet services and really control the bundle as they did during the cable TV era. Hey, Terry, thanks so much for that rundown. We really appreciate it. Some interesting numbers out of Netflix last night, stock down about 6.6%. But as Tara pointed out, it had a big run so far this year. Tara LaChapelle, Bloomberg Opinion uh, Media and Entertainment columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read her work and all of the fine work of Bloomberg Opinion writers at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or OPIN go on the terminal. I guess, Vani, one of the questions remains is how many services do you and I and everybody else do we want to pay for going forward? Well, I'm afraid to count the ones that I'm currently paying for, (laughs) Paul, because even though I keep thinking I'll cut the cord, there's something about watching something that's actually 
on now. There's yep. something that keeps you attached to the world, I think, at least, uh, you know, for me, uh, for the moment. I know a lot of people don't feel that way, but uh, I, I, you know, I like to tune into things at, at a certain time sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And then we've seen cord cutting, uh, you know, accelerate actually from the cable companies in the most recent quarter, uh, despite the pandemic. So people are really embracing uh, streaming technologies and some of the skinny bundles out there. And again, Netflix adding 10 million subscribers in the second quarter, 15 million in the first quarter. They have close to 200 million subscribers worldwide. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. 